there's there's a misconception that only uh, men with low testosterone levels experience uh, symptoms of low testosterone, right? So you can have men who have normal testosterone levels but still be exhibiting symptoms of low, low testosterone. And that you can't measure in a blood test. That's why you have to actually speak to the person and identify like what are the other factors that are going on here. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm a host, Seamland, and our guest today is Dr. Ralph Esposito. Dr. Ralph is a naturopathic physician who specializes in functional medicine and men's health. This episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked. Let's Get Checked offers different at-home blood tests for various biomarkers like testosterone, thyroid, vitamin D, cholesterol, hormones, and others. First, you collect the sample by using a finger prick, then you send it back, and you can get the results within two to five days. Knowledge is power, especially when it comes to your health and biology. You can get a 20% discount of all their blood tests with the code SEAMLUND at letsgetchecked.com. Use the code SEAMLUND for a 20% discount at letsgetchecked.com. Ralph, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, we we were connected by a mutual friend, uh, Dr. Carrie Jones, and uh, so, so she said that you're one of the kind of the top experts in the world of men's health. So I definitely had to have you on my show as well and talk about the, this, everything related to hormones and uh, especially for, for men. Yeah, absolutely. It's more of a, I mean, a lot of people do this and it's kind of a job for them. For me, it's just, I enjoy it. It's more of a hobby and a, and a fun thing to do, to, mm. to dive deep into these things. But yes, yeah. happy to be here. Yeah. So how did you become like uh, a doctor in this field and uh, you know, how did you, why did you, why did you get interested in the first place? So when I was in uh, undergrad, I was at NYU uh, studying nutrition and a lot of my focus there was trying to improve athletic performance with, you know, or that was a goal of mine. And I realized that there really wasn't a lot of health for men. And while I was there, um, I reached out and tried to find a naturopathic physician at NYU because I wanted to go down that route. I found that the basic nutrition curriculum was just not enough for me. I knew that nutrition was very important, um, and I wanted to learn more about how nutrition impacts you know, your, your genes, your hormones. Like, How do we optimize the body via nutrition, lifestyle, you know, supplements, et cetera? And it was very hard to find. You know, there is, there's, it's a very unique area and not many people cover it. So while I was at NYU, I connected with a naturopathic doctor there at the uh, medical center. And he essentially took me under his wing and we started doing research at the NYU Urology Center. Um, his name is Dr. Gio Espinoza. Uh, he's my mentor, but also one of my best friends. And we have published several chapters on the area regarding, you know, prostate health, kidney health. Anything literally from the waist down in a man um, has become a specialty. And then I just continue to capitalize on it and focus on it. And now I, you know, I realize how much hormones interplay with each other, not just testosterone, but, you know, estrogen, uh, insulin, adiponectin, you know, everything uh, that is either an endocrine or a paracrine uh, hormone is, is going to be pretty much up my alley because they all communicate with each other. Hmm. And and here I am. 
Yeah. Look, what, what, what is some of the differences between uh, naturopathic medicine and functional medicine and uh, like conventional medicine? Sure. So actually functional medicine was founded by naturopathic physicians. So a lot of the work that you'll find with a functional medicine doctor is based on a lot of naturopathic uh, philosophy or naturopathic um, found, uh, foundations. The one big difference is, is um, naturopathic medicine has a larger uh, paradigm. So it encompasses what you know, a lot of functional medicine docs really don't utilize. Um, it's it's a lot heavier on the nutrition aspect. Although functional medicine is big on nutrition, uh, naturopathic physicians are a lot more involved with herbs and herbal medicine. Uh, functional medicine also does, but just naturopaths have a different training in it. Uh, and then conventional medicine, well, obviously that's completely different because conventional medicine uh, functions on a reductionistic type of view. Uh, and it's very, uh, very minimally involves the holistic, uh, the the totality of the person in assessing an individual. So, you know, uh, you have an endocrinologist, you have a urologist, you have a cardiologist, you have a neurologist, and many times a lot of these doctors or a lot of these these systems don't communicate with each other. But in the body, they're very much reliant on each other. You know. Mm-hmm. You most cardiologists won't even tell you that thyroid function has an impact on somebody's, you know, uh, lipids and their uh, ApoB and their lipoproteins. Whereas, you know, you it's it's pretty much well founded in the research. So, those are pretty much the the major differences. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, almost like um, some of the uh, like uh, mainstream medicine tends to just look at the body in a like very, uh, you know segmented and it doesn't look at the whole picture and kind of ignores how, how you, like I said, that all these things are so interconnected. Right. So, you know, there are, there are conventional medical doctors and osteopathic doctors that utilize some of these practices in terms of looking at the body as a whole, but it's not part of their formal education. And many of uh, my colleagues who are in this field of, you know, integrative functional whatever you want to call it, they had to learn it all over. Whereas as a naturopathic physician, this is ingrained in you for four years of medical training plus clinical training um, and then whatever residency or postdoctorate work that you do. Mm-hmm. So it, it exists um, in you know, the conventional paradigm, but it's not part of their, their education. Right, right. And uh, after you got your uh, education... So uh, you started like uh, treating patients, and uh, what like what 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 have you learned ever since that time? Like, what's the kind of current state of most of your uh, like uh, customers or clients? Sure. Well, actually, after I finished school, um, I went and continued doing a medical internship at NYU Urology. So I did a lot of uh, basically intern work at the urology center, working with the doctors there, helping treat patients. And, you know, that was a great learning experience because as you continue to do the research, you also can apply it to, to men uh, and some women as well, because obviously there are women who deal with urological conditions as well. But I would say a lot of what I have learned is that uh, men are, a lot of men look at health very, um, a lot of men are very data driven. They're very 
um, show me what you see, show me what the results are, and then I'll believe it. But unfortunately, I don't think that's how it all works. And I think a lot of men are, there's a lot of psychosomatic or a, there's a lot of uh, mental or psychological components to men's health that is not always explained by the physiology. So you see a lot of men who experience, you know, prostate pain or they experience low libido. And a lot of that is you can't really show them on a blood test. Well, this is why you have that symptom. There are some tests that can do that, like the Dutch tests, which can show some of the adrenal function, which you really can't test in your blood. But a lot of it is with men's health is a, I would say it's a 50-50 mind and body type of approach because you know, men don't want to acknowledge it, but it it certainly is there and they tend to dismiss it. And if you don't address that factor, it's going to be very difficult in, you know, understanding how they're going to heal themselves and and feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Certainly like usually men would, uh, they would be like, um, they would take their health for granted (laughs) in some aspects and, uh, also not take it that seriously or like only until the last moment will they do something about it. Absolutely. So it takes them, you know, it takes them to get a heart attack. It takes them to get, you know, their toe cut off from diabetes or something extreme like that before they start really taking it seriously. I think it was the Cleveland Clinic or maybe Mayo Clinic, one very big institution here in the States that showed that, you know, men will speak to their partner first before they'll even speak to their doctor. Hmm. So it's, it's very interesting how the, the male mind works. It's, it's not so simple as you know, this is high or this test is low, or it's your testosterone or it's your, your estrogen. It's much more intricate. Yeah. So I would imagine like, it's like a pride thing as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But what about like, what about like the main causes, the lifestyle factors that is, is it, is it the diet, alcohol, shift work? What it, what's the like biggest factors? I think the biggest thing I'm seeing now, and and that's also because I deal with a lot of men who are high performers. Um, They try to be the best at their task. Um, So whether they're in finance, whether they're in real estate, whether they're in medicine, you know, whatever field that they're in, they want to be the best at it. And what is sacrificed during those times is stress, um, your ability to tolerate stress and sleep. Those are the two big things. And most people want to say, oh, well, you know, you know, it must be that men are eating more, you know, carbs or they're eating less vegetables or whatever it is. And yeah, those things are true too. But I think if you really had to correct a lot of things, it has to be their sleep and it has to be their ability to tolerate or manage their stress. Mm-hmm. Those two things, um, although they don't seem very influential, they happen at very low levels and they happen consistent consistently to the point where you're, you're basically insulting the body every single day and the body can only deal with so much. And that's where I think a lot of the, the issues start from. Yeah. Like I, I, I totally agree that, you know, stress and uh, sleep deprivation, they can override basically any attempts to stay healthy with exercise or diet because they're much more influential and more like impactful uh, on the, the kind of hormones and the general health. Yeah, and, and most people don't really understand. We are now starting to focus a little bit more on sleep. We have a lot of sleep, you know, wearables and um, devices to help us understand what's going on with our sleep. 
Um, but now that, you know, mental health is like getting a little bit more attention, I think sleep also has to play a, a part into that because you, you throw a man into five hours of sleep for uh, weeks or months. I mean, that's basically what I lived for four years during med school. And I don't think I was, you know, I don't think I was an ounce of healthy as what I am compared to to now. And I think that cannot go underestimated in most, in most men. And it doesn't come down like, you know, you have to sleep eight hours uh, every single night. Yes, you should. But there are other little things that most men are not doing, like, you know, having coffee or caffeine in the afternoon or having, you know, alcohol before they go to bed. Like those are little things that can have a profound impact on quality of, of health. Mm, yeah, that's for sure. Um, but uh, is it true that uh, like the average testosterone in men is like nowadays like 20% lower or so compared to the 70s or something? Yeah, so the testosterone levels as we're seeing, and this is in the United States where they're comparing uh, men um, compared to the, you know, the 70s and the 1970s and 1960s compared to men now, they've seen that there has been a slow decline in total testosterone levels in men uh, at the same age. So if you measure a man now at 50 years old, his testosterone level might be 100 to 200 points lower than what it, were, than what it was um, in a man 50 years old in the 1970s or 1980s. And that, you know, many people want to blame lifestyle factors and I'm sorry, uh, environmental factors like, you know, pesticides and plastics. And those absolutely have a lot to do with it. But uh, nothing or very few things in hormonal health and men's health uh, are just a, um, a, a one and done, right? It's not like go to bed at 10 o'clock get eight hours of sleep and everything is going to be better. Mm-hmm. Hormones are very adaptive. They, they adjust to the lifestyle and they will modify your body will modify its behavior physiologically to accommodate the changes. Um, and there's, there's very few times where you see, Oh, his testosterone is low because he's not sleeping well only. Mm-hmm. No, there's other things as well. Perhaps he's not getting enough nutrients. Maybe he's overtraining. Maybe he's undertraining in terms of weight training. Maybe he's eating a high carbohydrate diet. There's so many factors that trying to isolate one makes it very hard to create change. And that is actually comes back to our original conversation, our original comments of, you know, integrative medicine acknowledges that all of these things interact with each other. Whereas conventional medicine will say, well, there's no study on you know this intervention like nutritional intervention and improving you know thyroid function or testosterone or estrogen levels well yeah because you're not correcting all of the other things that have such a larger bearing on hormonal function which is very hard to argue but it's also harder to prove hmm. yeah definitely like so it's many it's a very context dependent situation or like what what why is a particular person's testosterone low Right. Right. And that's, 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 you know, you have to look at uh, blood tests, you have to look at lifestyle, you know, most people are like, Hey, look at my blood work. What does it tell you? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know you. There's no way I could, there's no way I could say, Oh, yeah, this is higher. This is low. 
you know, there's there's a misconception that only uh, men with low testosterone levels experience uh, symptoms of low testosterone, right? So you can have men who have normal testosterone levels but still be exhibiting symptoms of low low testosterone. And that you can't measure in a blood test. That's why you have to actually speak to the person and identify like what are the other factors that are going on here. Hmm. Uh, what would be maybe like some of the causes in that situation? So, you know, when you look at hormonal dysfunction, you have to look at it as a, as a multifaceted approach. So you have to look at number one, um, the nutritional interventions. Are you having, you know, nutrition or under nourishing your body, whether it's a macronutrient quantity or just, ca- you know, calorie quality. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have to look at the adrenal glands because the adrenal glands, you know, many people look at the, you know, most endocrinologists don't really pay attention to the adrenal axis, the HPA axis. They look a lot at just the HPG uh, or HPT, which is hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis or hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So they don't really put the two together. But these three systems communicate with each other. And if one is off, it'll likely impact the other. So we make a lot of our testosterone precursors from our adrenal hormones, DHEA. So Mm -hmm. if that is off, and it's going to have, you know, subsequent effects on uh, gonadal function. But you have to understand that men also can, the symptoms of adrenal dysfunction or HPA access dysfunction sometimes mimics low thyroid and low testosterone. That, but then it's really hard to discern which one it is. So you have to look at those three accesses first and try to identify, okay, testosterone levels are normal. Um, you know, thyroid levels are normal, depending on who you ask. You know, maybe there's an adrenal issue going on here. And then if all of those check off okay, then you have to look, well, maybe these testosterone levels for this individual might be too low. And then you have to look into the genomic aspect of it. What are the, what are the genetics tell us uh, the information that we have of what your your DNA blueprint says about your uh, your response to signals, right? Because mm-hmm. your your nucleus, where your DNA is held, is influenced. You know your hormones bind to receptors in the nucleus of your cell or in the mitochondria of your cell, and that is often dictated by your genetic blueprint. And one thing that we see is um, your your androgen receptors are largely impacted. Their sensitivity is largely impacted by um, their, their, the, the DNA. So what we do is you can assess something called CAG repeats, which are nucleotide repeats, that when you have more of these repeats, uh, that the androgen receptor is uh, less sensitive, which means mm-hmm. that it doesn't respond as well. And it's really hard to test for those, but they're, and, you know, in the clinical setting, but in a research setting, it is very much able to be assessed. And then you could identify, okay, well, if this person has high amounts of CAG repeats at the androgen receptor, then they might not be as responsive to testosterone compared to another man who gets the same exposure, but has more sensitivity. It's kind of like insulin, right? Insulin and diabetes. As somebody becomes more insulin resistant, they're less likely to respond. Well, this is more 
of a similar approach, except it's from a genetic uh, lens. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So uh, maybe let, let's start to unravel some of the ways people can not, or men can optimize their testosterone as well. So like what is maybe like a brief overview of testosterone and uh, what's the role and uh, how does it function in the body? Yeah, so testosterone, there's, the, the testosterone is made in the testes of your, uh, they'll call the lilydig cells of your testes, which is actually made in the mitochondria. So many individuals overlook and don't understand that at a molecular level, mitochondrial function is the foundation of how you make these hormones. So if your mitochondria are constantly taxed or constantly overworked or dysfunctional, then it makes it hard to, for them to do their daily activities. So on a, on a most focused or reductionistic approach, the mitochondria make testosterone and it's in response to a hormone called LH, which binds to the receptors at the, um, in the lytic cells, which then tells the mitochondria to make more testosterone. But there are a lot of factors that can have impacts on that. And, you know, thyroid hormone is required for those receptors to work properly. You have to have enough nutrients like zinc um, in order for those hormones to be receptor, uh, for those hormones to be functional because it's part of the receptor that increases production of the androgen receptor. So if you look at it, like, you know, if I had a, if I had like a Google maps, right. And you had, you mm -hmm. zoom in on a location, I had to zoom in right in on a cell in the body that would make testosterone. That's where it works at a, you know, a reductionistic approach, but really it all starts in the brain where the brain then tells the body uh, release. The brain tells the pituitary release glutenizing hormone, go throughout the whole body, find receptors that you like. Most of those are in the testes and the testes will then respond to that, make testosterone. And then that testosterone is released into the blood, um, bound to a hormone, uh, bound to a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. It's also bound to albumin, which is another protein that's detached and then free testosterone. It enters the cell and causes activation and does all the things that we know testosterone can, can do. You know, increase muscle mass, in, uh, change uh, mood, have an impact on endothelial function or cardiovascular health. It all starts at the cellular level, but in a macro view, it's really a brain to testes communication. Mm. Wow, yeah, that's pretty pretty cool. I didn't know about the mitochondria part, but it uh, does make uh, some sense in a way. And uh, like, what's the difference between men and uh, women? Because like both of them produce testosterone. Yeah. So in men, your testosterone is made in your lytic cells of your testes, which we know. In women, it's mostly uh, via conversion from DHEA to testosterone, uh, which happens mostly in the ovaries or the adrenal glands. So obviously women uh, have two X chromosomes, men have an X and a Y chromosome, and this is what dictates, you know, how our cells function. So in women, it works completely different. Now, women can also make estrogen uh, independent, uh, you know, men can also make estrogen uh, from testosterone, whereas women make estrogen, um, you know, de novo, which is basically from their their ovaries and uh and the cells the uh the cells in the ovary those make estrogen directly uh, and men it's different because men can only make it from testosterone 
the only way the other cells in the body that can make estrogen are fat cells. And that mm. happens in men and in women. So in women, they make estrogen and fat cells, and which usually is what takes over during menopause. In men, that estrogen can be made pretty much throughout life. And that's why you see a lot of older men in their 50s and 60s who are overweight, uh, have low testosterone levels because they're taking a lot of that testosterone and converting it to estrogen. Mm. And that's how you, that's how you, you know, demasculinize the male population is you make them more fat. <laughs> yeah. So obesity is a huge uh, kind of factor huge. for lo lowering testosterone. Huge. Yes. Yeah. And it's not just because, you know, of increased fat cells, but also because of increased insulin. Insulin, uh, obesity is usually a function of uh, insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia, which is insulin is a, uh, it activates the enzyme called aromatase. And aromatase is what converts testosterone to estrogen. So the, the more body fat you have, the more insulin resistant you are likely to be, the more insulin your body will have to make to keep up with managing your blood sugar, because obviously if blood sugar goes too high, you die. Mm -hmm. Then that also causes an increase in, in estrogen levels uh, as the body continues to convert your testosterone to estrogen. Right. Yeah. It's a vicious uh, cycle. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, is there a certain uh, like amount of uh, estrogen that you would want to have because I would imagine like too low is is also not not ideal and you would want to have like some sort of a balance between uh, testosterone. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really happy you mentioned that because you'll see all over social media, um, you know, I call it like bro science, right? So that's basically, you know, men who are more is better, more testosterone, more masculinity, uh, less estrogen, but unfortunately, that's that's um, not accurate and misleading. We do need estrogen. Um, estrogen is essential for the uh, lining of the arteries of uh, uh, lining of your artery, the endothelial lining of your arteries. It helps with the elasticity, so these vessels become more flexible, so they don't lead to heart disease. Their estradiol is essential for brain function. And in fact, we see that men with very low estrogen levels also, uh, which happens elderly or on men on what we call androgen deprivation therapy, which is what men with prostate cancer get treated with um, because they think testosterone causes prostate cancer. These men start feeling fatigued and mentally out of it. And part of that is due to the very low estrogen levels. So, you know, also estrogen, estrogen comes in many different forms. Um, majority it's estrone, which is E1, estradiol, E2, and estriol, E3. And uh, what I do is I assess estradiol levels in the blood, and I like to see it, you know, no less than 20 to 25. Uh, once it starts hitting above 40 picograms per milliliter, then I get a little bit concerned um, because that's what we know is likely uh, related to low body composition. And the more fat you have or the as one of my colleagues would say, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, the more under-muscled you are, uh, which also comes with being over-fat, is a significant risk factor for a lot of conditions, especially uh, male-related conditions, in particular prostate cancer and low testosterone, et cetera. Hmm. Yeah. What, what, what do you think about uh, the 
kind of claims that uh, testosterone causes this heart disease and uh, prostate cancer? I don't think the research is um, convinced, Has I don't think the research has convinced me that testosterone causes prostate cancer. And I think it's pretty obvious that testosterone does not cause heart disease. That it does not cause heart disease either. Um, and that has a lot to do with what we're seeing um, in, the, in the literature because you'll see that if you put men on ADT, androgen deprivation therapy, their risk of heart disease goes up, their risk of Alzheimer's or dementia goes up. Um, and yes, the prostate cancer does go away, but once you get them back off uh, deprivation therapy, sometimes the testosterone can come back a little bit more aggressively. So what we see is that testosterone can bind to these receptors, but it's not actually uh, testosterone. It's a, the byproduct called DHT, which is a byproduct of testosterone, which has a, about a tenfold a higher affinity for testosterone receptors compared to testosterone itself. So when you put it in a cell culture, yes, DHT and testosterone will increase the growth, growth of prostate cancer cells. But uh, outside of the body, you know, men with higher testosterone levels don't have a higher risk of prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And in fact, sometimes we see that men with lower testosterone levels, especially lower free testosterone levels, might have a higher risk of prostate cancer. And we think that's because, um, you know, it's, it could be due to higher estrogen levels. Estrogen can sensitize these prostate cancer cells and cause increase in growth and proliferation. So when you look at estrogen, well, okay, is it estrogen that's the problem or is it the estrogen receptor? And this is where we get back to the DNA and the genetics of it. Your estrogen receptors, you have an alpha and a beta receptor. The alpha receptor is, causes increase in growth and poor differentiation. So what is prostate cancer? Prostate cancer is poorly differentiated and increased growth. So perhaps it's not just the testosterone and the DHT, but combined with high estrogen levels, which may prime these prostate cancer cells or prostate cells to be more prone to prostate cancer. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a very kind of taken out of context in a way. And, and in, for like heart disease, like if you have low, low testosterone, then uh, you would also have like low thyroid and that can also just predispose you to uh, heart disease and uh, atherosclerosis through like diabetes and insulin resistance. So you don't, you don't want to like have low testosterone. Low testosterone is like equally as big of a risk factor than uh, like high testosterone, if, even if it's even if high testosterone would be a risk factor. Right. So when you really look at risk factors, there's no denying that aside from you know maybe smoking. Uh, obesity and high insulin levels, which one can argue is a cause of obesity, is one of the major factors or causes of diabetes. I'm sorry, of cancer. Mm. Yeah. So if you really had to say, well, testosterone causes cancer, prostate cancer, or any type of cancer, I would say, okay, um, but how does that compare to insulin? And it would, you'd be hard pressed to find any literature suggesting that insulin does not um, contribute more to cancer as an overall process than uh, than uh, compared to testosterone. Then that really tells you 
is it the, is it the testosterone or is it the te- testosterone in somebody who's insulin resistant? Mm-hmm. And that's where the issue comes. So, you know, most men really want, they come to me and like, I want to reduce my risk of prostate cancer. I want to reduce my risk of uh, low testosterone. And I say, okay, well, that's great, but I can't focus on your testosterone until we get your metabolic health under control. We have mm-hmm. to reduce your insulin resistance. We have to make sure that you use your energy efficiently. That's where you have to start. Yeah. So how would you go about fixing insulin resistance? Well, first you have to identify what is, is this person not having enough muscle? Um, if muscle mass or exercise is probably the best tools, you know, that beats metformin, that beats, you know, any medication to optimize your ability to partition or utilize fuel and fuel that be carbs, fats, and protein. And the best way to make sure you're insulin sensitive is exercise and deplete or make sure your body is not in glycogen excess. So the more glycogen your body's storing in the liver, um, the more likely you are to be insulin resistant. And that's because your body will, your liver has this store of glycogen and it'll continue to pump it out and continue to put glucose into the cells. And the more glucose that your your body sees, uh, the more insulin that'll be released. So how do we do that? Well, we focus on a low glycemic diet, a diet that doesn't increase blood sugar very high, a diet that doesn't overburden the body with carbohydrates, so it's not storing too much of them. And we make sure that the muscle cells work efficiently to make sure uh, that they're able to utilize that fuel as energy. Now, muscle cells have glycogen, but they they use it for themselves. Mm -hmm. Muscle cells can't take your glycogen and push it into the blood. The liver can. So by, by having more muscle mass, you can take from the liver and bring to the muscle and, and muscle is the best way that we can utilize our sugar and utilize our, our insulin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like a matter of excess, excess energy. And, exactly uh, right. And yeah, like exercise is the, the, specifically like lifting weights is the best uh, kind of testosterone boosting exercise because you're like stimulating muscle growth and uh, you know, like ha- having the right, like the hormonal surge Absolutely. Right. So, you know, it's all about timing of hormones as well. Um, When you exercise, you're increasing your testosterone levels, you increase your uh, growth hormone, all of these things in unison will allow you to utilize your, your, your macronutrients better. And this is, that is naturopathic medicine. That is, you know, what many would say nutritional medicine, which is not a foundation in our current medical profession. And that's where I think we need to start focusing on is having physicians really understand how do, uh, how do my, uh, my, how does my food communicate with my body? And most of the time it's a hormonal influence. So that's why I'm infatuated with hormones. Yeah. And, uh, what about you know you, you mentioned like modulating your carbs and regulating them uh, or eating like a semi low low glycemic diet what do you think about like a keto ketogenic diet or a completely zero carb diet um i think it has to be individualized uh for 
every person. I don't think everybody works well on a ketogenic diet. You know, there are genetic, um, we are all genetically uh, unique. We have our biochemical individuality. So a ketogenic diet can be helpful for individuals who are uh, overeating carbohydrates or who are hypersensitive to uh, sugar and glucose. But for athletes, sometimes that's not the best thing to do because you can decrease performance um, and it takes you know several months for you to uh, be able to adapt to a new energy source. On top of that, um, a ketogenic diet can be stressful. Not, I mean, aside from the fact of like figuring out what to eat, but it can be stressful on the body because it is now, you know, you can put yourself into a, a, a energy resource that the body's not typically used to using. And this creates a stressor for some individuals, which then results in uh, increasing cortisol and hormonal imbalances, which is counterproductive. We don't want high cortisol levels because that's going to uh, decrease our ability to uh, utilize sugar as energy. It's going to cause us to have insulin resistance and it's going to decrease muscle mass. Over a long period of time, cortisol is catabolic. It breaks down the body. So you have to find that, that balance between you know, a ketogenic diet, how does it mix with your current lifestyle? Are you doing too much of it? Um, and you have to measure blood markers. You know, look at your lipids. If your lipids jump on a ketogenic diet, right? Like if your LDL particles and your ApoB particles go up, then it's not for you. Um, so I, I don't make broad sweeping assessments or guidelines on, you know, everybody should be keto. I don't believe that. Um, same way I don't believe everybody should be vegan. You know, I don't think anybody, everybody should be uh, Mediterranean. It all depends on the individual, which makes it hard to do studies, right? How do we, how do we have, how do we conclude this argument of what's better, keto, carnivore, vegan, Mediterranean? It, it, it's impossible. It, it's, it's, it's like arguing with religion. You can't <laughs> prove it. Uh, right. It all depends on what you believe or what you experience. And I can't tell you as you, you as a person, I can't tell you, you know, if, if you told me I believe ketogenic is the best diet for me, there's no way I'm going to convince you otherwise because you believe it. Mm. Right. It's a belief. Like I believe that, you know, my sport team is better than your sport team. H how do you prove that? You can't prove that. I mean, they could play each other, but that's pretty much it. And you can't really, you, the only way you can, you know, have a match and identify who's the better team or who's the better diet is to put them up against each other. But mm. that's only for you. It doesn't apply to everybody else. Yeah. And that is, that is a very big challenge, uh, which is why I advise a lot of people, especially to your listeners, like don't try to doctor yourself. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Like everyone's uh, diet is a, uh subjective to themselves and uh, like although some people may see like an improvement in their testosterone and hormones by going on a keto diet doesn't, doesn't mean that it's gonna have like the same effect on someone else and uh, yeah like even like for example you know a keto diet could make you uh, improve your testosterone if you're like losing weight you're fixing your insulin resistance but at the same time it can also for someone else it can cause like too much stress and cortisol which will then downregulate testosterone so uh, it right. depends on the, where the person is coming from as well. And I do think that like chronic ketosis 
there are some studies that show that yeah, like being in ketosis all the time or being on a low carb diet all the time may uh, reduce some testosterone. And carbs do have like their or insulin even like has their testosterone boosting effects uh, if if it's like like applied in the right situation and in the right like uh, amount. Right, and and when you look at it, if you put a lot of athletes on a low carbohydrate diet, it, it, they become catabolic. Um, and not because they are eating low carbs sometimes, but also because they just aren't eating enough, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's hard to eat a lot of fat. I mean, if you put somebody on a real ketogenic diet, they're satiated and they feel full and they don't want to eat so much, which is part of the reason why keto works. Um, but again, you know, a lot of the tests that I do with my patients is I do glucose tolerance tests, which, which is usually, you know, most people know that an, an endocrinologist or obstetrician listening to me probably is going to call me a quack, but that's fine. Um, but these tests are doing, done in pregnant women, right. To see if they are, have gestational diabetes, you know, they give them a bunch of sugar. They see what their blood sugar does at, you know, one hour and two hours later. Well, I want to see what that does in a regular individual because a lot of people are having, you know, 50 to 60 to 70 grams of sugar in a sitting, um, whether it's, you know, pure sugar. I mean, you can easily hit 70 grams of sugar with, you know, a hamburger and a Coke. Mm. A Coke is what, like 45 grams of sugar, like a can of soda could be, you know, anywhere from 30 to 45 grams of sugar, depending on the type. Then you have a, you know, uh, a bun with you know, some French fries, you, you've easily hit a hundred carbs in your diet. Yeah. So what does your body do to that? And a glucose tolerance test tells me, what does your blood sugar do at one hour and two hours later? If your blood sugar can't drop after an hour or two of a meal, then that blood sugar is circulating in your body. That means insulin is circulating in your body even higher than that. That is a, that is a big, big issue when you look at trying to prevent cancer, trying to improve hormonal function. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that, you know, hormones are, are, my, are my thing, it's what I focus on, um, but it's so involved in every single aspect of medicine that it's not just hormones. It's hormones and metabolic disease. It's hormones and cancer. It's hormone and sleep, right? It's all hormones and menopause, right? They're, all of these things are, are all related, um, which is very hard to, you know, I, I have a difficult time making these boundaries. So I, I really appreciate that you're acknowledging the fact that these things overlap with a lot of other areas. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And, but let's talk maybe like about, about the thyroid. How does that affect uh, testosterone hormones? So in order, going back down to at the molecular level, in testosterone, the the Leydig cells um, are sensitive to luteinizing hormone. And luteinizing hormone, as we mentioned, binds to the Leydig cells and tells your mitochondria to make these uh, these hormones. Well, the there's certain hormone, there's certain uh, proteins in there called cyclic AMP and uh, it called the star receptor, which is a steroidogenic uh, receptor. And those are dependent on thyroid hormone. These, uh, basically, these second messenger systems where the testosterone, uh, where the hormones of the, we call gonadotropins, or the trophic hormones that tell your body to make testosterone, are dependent on thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone is 
the is I, I look at it as the gears in the body. If the gears are not are running, or if the gears are too slow, then you know the wheels are not going to run. The mm-hmm. steering wheel won't move. The the air conditioner will turn off. Right. That's what will happen. The car will shut down. The body will slow down. And without thyroid hormone, those things are not going to function properly. So we have to make sure that thyroid hormone is adequate because it's necessary for these receptors to actually work. And this works at a testosterone level, at a hormonal level, but also works at a cardiovascular level because cardiovascular disease, uh, it's very hard to clear your lipids and your lipoproteins without thyroid hormone because your LDL receptors need thyroid hormone. So it doesn't just work at your testosterone, you know, your testes. It, it's every single cell of the body requires these hormones. So when a doctor tells my patient, oh, yeah, your TSH was, you know, at three international, micro-international units per uh, milliliter or, or whatever the, the units were, uh, you know, three is fine. That's normal. At less than four, that's normal. No, that's not normal. That is not optimal right? I don't care what normal is. Normal, it means you fall within two standard deviations of the average. Mm -hmm. I I never in my life have I wanted to be average. I've always (laughs) wanted to be, you know, I've never, I've never been content with getting a 75 in, you know, science class. Mm -hmm. You know, I I wanted to be, you know, top tier. I wanted to be the top percentile. And that's what I'm aiming for every single one of my patients. Yeah, like uh, if you want, if you were to aim to for the average testosterone or average um, like uh, metabolic health, then yeah, you're gonna end up like yeah, like the average person, which is uh, you know sick and uh, obese. So yeah, it's definitely worthwhile to aim higher, especially when it comes to like uh, or like aim aim better with, when it comes to biomarkers. Right. Yeah, and you see a lot of endocrinologists is like give more insulin, give more metformin. Well, how about we just reduce the amount? of metformin that's needed how much how about we reduce the amount of insulin that's needed how do you do that well you you modify our lifestyle Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um are there like any different symptoms between men and women when it comes to uh, hypothyroidism yes so it's it's much more prevalent in women but i think it's because the symptoms are more noticeable in women uh, and men tend to not complain about it very much. So in, it is more common in women, but they show differently. In women, they notice a little bit more hair loss, their nails get weaker, uh, their skin starts to be a little bit more sensitive. And that has a lot to do with um, estrogen as well, because with inadequate estrogen levels, you will get weaker skin, you will get changes in your hair quality. Um, so it's, sometimes it's overlapped or missed because of female hormones. In men, hypothyroidism presents more as fatigue, uh, sensation of coldness, which happens in women too, uh, but low libido, low energy, low motivation, which sounds a lot like low testosterone, but they they inter, interlap, they overlap with each other, and that's where you have to really assess. It's, it's not, this is the art of medicine. A mm. blood test is a science of medicine, right? The art of medicine is what does that mean to my person here and now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And uh, more individualized. Absolutely. It needs to be individualized for the patient. Um, and you also have to look at trends. Every single one of my patients, I, I don't just look at what is their blood work now. I'm like, what is their blood work for the past you know, six years or six months? 
a lot of that's in, that's information that tells me trends are important when we try to look at data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, how would you like go about preventing low thyroid and uh, the other like consequences that come from it? So it's a lot. So in order to make thyroid hormone, you need selenium, you need zinc, you need iodine, you need vitamin A. Uh, I mean, it actually actually to make thyroid hormone, you need selenium and zinc and iodine. So uh, number one, make sure you are not deplete in those nutrients. Uh, very hard to assess those. So sometimes you can do urinary tests. Um, sometimes there are certain labs that do um, that do nutrient testing in your in your body. Usually, you want to assess these things via red blood cells because what tells me what's in your plasma it doesn't really tell me what's in your cell and that's active. So that's that's number one. You want to make sure you you have enough of those nutrients. Then you have to look at zinc. Uh, excuse me, vitamin A, which is essential for the thyroid receptors. Um, and you have to make sure that the you're rep, you're uh, replete in these nutrients. Secondly, you want to make sure you remove anything that's going to cause a harm to the thyroid, and that has a lot to do with, you know, um, high sugar levels, inflammation, making sure that, that there's no infection that could be contributing to this, ruling out an autoimmune issue. Maybe there was an autoimmune issue that has occurred years ago and it's gone missed. So you need to look at, you know, TPO and thyroid antibody testing. Um, that that is the basic of what I do in terms of trying to identify what is a contributing factor of the thyroid dysfunction. As you go deeper into it, you start identifying, well, you know, what's individual to this person. And sometimes common foods like soy can be con- um, contraindicated in individuals who have who have uh, hypothyroidism. Corn, uh, corn can be problematic for some of those individuals. So you have to identify it per per person. But those are the few things that I would look at first. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. Like um, in so the autoimmune conditions, the kind of body starts at, at attacking its own uh, thyroid. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and that happens. You know, a lot of times in Lyme disease, which is very prevalent here in uh, New York and the Pacific. Excuse me, the um, the Northeast. Lyme disease is a condition that causes sometimes a total body, you know, uh, we call it molecular mimicry, which is the bacteria then causes the body to start hating itself. And that is what can lead to other thyroid issues. Very commonly, I see those two associated. I don't know if one causes the other, but it, it's, it, it can be something that, you know, you want to reduce the burden on the body. There's no one thing. It's like, take this herb to correct your thyroid. Well, that's not really what we want to do. Um, we want to identify why did it go awry in the first place and trying to identify the factor, the culprit is, is step one. Yeah. Uh, but what, what, what do you think about uh, intermittent fasting? Uh, how does it affect thyroid and uh, testosterone? So fasting is, um, it's a mixed bag. Prolonged fasting or fa- uh, like, you know, three day, five day fasts uh, will in no doubt decrease thyroid function. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will suppress your thyroid. And that is the right thing to do. Your your body will convert T4 to reverse T3. It doesn't need that reverse. It doesn't need the T4 because you're you're basically calorically deprived. And it, it converts all that to T3, a reverse T3, because you don't need it. So then what happens is your body then slows down. But intermittent fasting, I'm, I'm assuming you mean you know, 16 hour fast or, yeah, you know, yeah. 18 hour fast. So that is less likely to cause thyroid dysfunction 
assuming all else is well. So with individuals who are exercising too much, not eating enough, um, not sleeping well, and then fasting, well, the easiest thing to fix is eat more, right? So you're not adding that adding a stressor, the adding a stressor to the body, because fasting is a stressor, mm. as is sleep deprivation, as is caloric restriction, right? As is training. So if you tell me, yeah, I want to be able to, you know, gain ten pounds of muscle mass, um, well, in the next year, well fasting might not be the best option for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you have to keep it to 12 hours or 14 hours fasting and stay away from the one meal a day type of approach. I can only tell you based on your own individual, you know, body chemistry, your, your muscle uh, mass, your body composition, your history. How do you respond to these things? What is your sleep like? What is your exercise like? Are you taking days off? You know, are you doing low intensity training, high intensity? Like, there's, there's a million questions that come into my mind that, you know, kind of goes into my own internal algorithm and I spit out, okay, well, this is what I think is going to be best for you. Hmm. Yeah, certainly like, um, too much, too much fasting will cause like stress and, uh, that's just don't regulate thyroid and testosterone. So you have to know like, yeah, what do I have like additional stressors in my life? And <laughs> like, uh, am I stressed out at work or am I like exposed to some sort of, uh, I don't know, some other source of stressor whether that be like psychological stress or physical stress because uh all the all all those things affect the overall uh, outcome absolutely and it's hard to uh, identify the the amount that each one is impacting you right so some people say you know oh i i fast well maybe fasting is not the problem for you maybe it's the fact that you're not eating enough or maybe you're eating too much right you have to look at all of these things together yeah uh what are maybe like some other foods that also help with testosterone well you want to look at foods that uh aside from you know reducing insulin um i don't think there's one food that i would say improves testosterone um there are some herbs that i think are helpful like maca um, ashwagandha is very helpful um in, in men who are trying to optimize their testosterone i would make sure that they're having enough zinc so that can be found in some seafood like oysters or red meat. Uh, that's where I would look and make sure that they're getting enough nutrients on that front. Um, but the the biggest issue I would say is caloric restriction. So, you know, eating a very low calorie diet and or eating too many carbohydrates are going to be the things that are going to impact your testosterone negatively. Um, making sure you're having enough protein is probably going to be the number one way that I go about it, improving a, men's, a male's testosterone levels. Hmm. Uh, but what about uh, cholesterol and uh, fat? fat? I th- so in order to make these hormones, you need cholesterol. But the cholesterol that we get from our diet is not readily ab- absorbed because it's in a cholesterol ester. So we don't really absorb these cholesterols very much. It's more of the fats. Hmm. Now, uh, so saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fats, all of these are can be healthy fats. The issue becomes is when they become too much. Um, there's one study that suggests that statins can reduce male testosterone levels. Um, but in order for you to deprive your body of enough cholesterol, right, by we would assume like a statin, to completely suppress 
your testosterone function, your your cholesterol has to be very very low. Your 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 when your cholesterol is low, um, or the way it works is the the body, the adrenal glands and the testes will have first priority over cholesterol, and they will take it and utilize it for their use, or they can make it themselves to make these hormones. So uh, I don't think a low cholesterol diet is something that would impair hormonal function. I do think that a low fat diet, um, especially low in monounsaturated fats like olive oil, avocado oil, uh, fish oil, are going to have a negative impact rather than saying a high fat diet will increase testosterone levels. Mm-hmm. Many people take what I say and say, oh, it's uh, fat is necessary to make cholesterol, which is necessary to make um, your hormones. That doesn't mean more is better. Right. It just means less is probably worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like you only need like a certain threshold where you're getting like the minimal effective dose for optimizing the hormones, and more isn't going to necessarily be better. But you know, it doesn't mean that it's like uh, harmful or it doesn't mean that it's beneficial it's uh, just you'll just have like extra resources in a way exactly and then you have to be careful are these individuals at high risk of heart disease and and what does that play how does that play into a role i mean i have a very high risk of heart disease just from my family history uh and my lp little a so i i know what my risk is so i have to be very cautious of what i do Mm -hmm. um you mentioned a few of these adaptogens or like herbs are there any specific ones that uh, that you use or that you recommend to your uh, patients yeah so the ones that i like the most uh are ashwagandha called withania somnifera um i like the ksm 66 version which allows uh which has been most research in improving uh, lh and fsh levels and improving testosterone levels in men uh, also great at improving male fertility so I like ashwagandha, maca, exceptional herb, not necessarily in increasing testosterone levels, but very, very good um, in improving uh, libido and sex drive. So sense of energy is uh, maca is going to be a great herb for that. But in men, it will not have an impact on you know testosterone or estrogen levels, which is important um, because you don't want to give somebody if they can't have testosterone, you want to you don't want to give them a supplement that's going to increase those levels. Uh, mm-hmm. Other herbs that can be helpful, such as Tonka Ali, uh, Shalajit. These are other herbs that can be helpful in improving testosterone levels. But my my go-tos are the ashwagandha, um, the maca. I like DHEA, the precursor. Uh, zinc is, those are, the, those are the major ones that I kind of go for in terms of improving testosterone levels. Now, if I, I wanted to improve libido, then it's a whole different story because that has to take into consideration the adrenal glands. So then you look at things like rhodiola, uh, Panax ginseng, not not Eleuthero, but Panax ginseng, Asian ginseng. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at other things like, are, is this a stress issue? So maybe they need a little bit more relaxation like Hava or uh, L-theanine, right? It's, it's not, uh, this is what I do for this person uh, or this picture. It's, mm-hmm you know, you have to look at each individual differently. Right. What are some, what, what are the like mechanisms of why they raise testosterone? We don't know exactly um, how 
we know well, we know ashwagandha will increase LH and FSH levels. So that's how we think it improves testosterone levels and by improving your uh, HPG access. Um, uh, zinc is a necessary nutrient for what we call uh, the zinc uh, leucine zippers, which are at the DNA level, at the uh, nuclear level, and improving androgen receptors. So that is why we think zinc is going to be helpful in improving testosterone levels, but more of improving your sensitivity to testosterone. Um, DHEA is a precursor to testosterone. It's necessary to make testosterone in the body. Uh, sometimes uh, men can be deprived of this because of chronic inflammation or uh, uh, adrenal dysfunction. So you add DHEA to help improve their ability to make more testosterone. There's some literature suggesting that this can be helpful in young and even um, older men, especially athletes. Mm -hmm. So those are the ways that we think that they work. Um, rhodiola, Panax, ginseng, um, those are not approved. I would not approve those to be testosterone producing supplements, but more on, they work on an adrenal level, um, mm -hmm. and improving your sense of stress, which has an impact on how you perceive stress, which then can have downstream effects on improving your, your adrenal function, your stress adaptation. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, uh, DHEA, uh, what's like uh, people can take it in different forms or so what are the differences between like regular DHEA and so like seven keto DHEA? Yeah. So uh, a great question. Seven keto DHEA does not get converted to DHEA. It cannot be converted to testosterone. Um, so uh, seven keto DHEA is, is, is out. I don't find any use or benefit from it. Uh, mm. DHEA alone is likely going to be most effective. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, that's something that also uh, declines uh, with age and uh, like the, the, therefore like some of the reduction in testosterone with age also comes from this reduction in uh, DHEA. Yes. Yeah. And that happens because there's a adrenal dysfunction going on and because the body is trying to take that DHEA and it's converting it to it's uh, metabolites because there is a pro-inflammatory state going on there. And aging is, I mean, the reason why we get old is because there's a pro-inflammatory issue going on. Aging in and of itself uh, is, um, it degrades our function, right? What is the number one risk factor for low testosterone or uh, heart disease or dementia or Alzheimer's? It's age. That that's that's number one, but we can't control age, but we can control how well our cells are resistant to aging, and that's that's the focus that we want to work on. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting about it. So, like your biological age and is somewhat different from your chronological age. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, what about like hormone replacement therapy, like um? who would be like a candidate for doing that or uh, when would you ever recommend uh, someone to try it out? Well, it depends on the age of the person. Um, and I assume you mean testosterone replacement. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on the age of the person. The younger you start it, the more likely it, it is that the body is not going to recover from it. Um, and especially if you do it long term. So I, I advise men to exhaust all options before going on testosterone replacement therapy. Um, because once you start it, it's likely that you're going to be on it for a long, long time. 
Um, but it's not, it's not negative. You just have to make sure you're getting the right person to do it, dosing it correct, correctly, monitoring your free testosterone levels, your total testosterone levels, your estradiol levels. All of these things are important. Um, so I'm not entirely opposed to it. The preferred method is usually injection compared to gel. Um, or the topicals because it's less likely to aromatize and be rubbed off. But I don't have any issues with testosterone replacement therapy. I have issues with uh, doctors who think they know what they're doing, but actually are just, um, you know, you know, following a, a regular guideline or what does this mm. guideline say about, you know, testosterone? How much do I give? And, and it's, it can't be, you know, the guidelines don't know the person. That only the doctor can know the person and it needs to be, individualized for that person mm. yeah that's it's almost like a like a quick fix that uh and it, it can be like very beneficial for like a very like the aging population who already don't they they're like their natural options are already pretty much exhausted and uh, they they would see like a much significant uh boost or in, increase in the quality of life whereas someone who is like young or younger, then uh, they can just maybe, you know, lose some weight or uh, fix their sleep and stop managing the stress better. And they would already see like some, some improvements, so to say. So rather than trying to make a quick fix, then you should, yeah, just, you know, get your, get your things together and uh, optimize your lifestyle. Absolutely. And then also there are men who, who go on testosterone, but it doesn't resolve the symptoms, right? And then that tells me, well, this is not a testosterone issue. It's mm. probably more of a lifestyle issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's maybe like a good kind of a point to start wrapping things up as well. So maybe like what are some of the most important tips for staying healthy uh, as a man nowadays? I think number one, you have to make sure that you're sleeping at least seven to eight hours of sleep. Uh, number two, make sure you're, you're getting blood work uh, a baseline blood work done, you know, I would say, you know, uh, at least once a year, you should be getting your testosterone checked, your hormones checked to get an idea of where you are. Because if you know what your testosterone levels are at 25, then you can compare them when you're 35 and 45 and 55, right? So if I saw you at, you know, 45, and you're like, oh, my testosterone levels are low, well, I don't know where you were 20 years ago. Maybe they were the same. So maybe it's not testosterone. So I think, um, you know, getting your sleep under control, making sure that you're seeing the right doctor and making sure that they're, you know, covering all of their bases in terms of treating the actual issue. Um, and then lastly, just making sure that you're not, um, that you're properly nourished, whether it's with your diet or with supplements, because it's very hard to achieve a optimal diet in this, in this time frame. just because number one, you know, food quality can be decreased. But number one goal is to make sure your food quality is high um, and then try to supplement it from there on out. Hmm. Those are probably be my big three. And then lastly, you know, exercise is very important, but more important than that is movement. A lot of, a lot of men are uh, now working like desk jobs or, you know, especially now a lot of people are working from home. You have to move. You have to make sure that you move because if you sit around all day, your body becomes stagnant, your muscles become tight, you don't utilize any energy, and then you become sluggish, not only mentally, but also physically, your body will slow down. And that is what leads to aging in men. Hmm. Yeah, certainly. Like, 
so the simple simple tips for the, that we should all follow no matter what or no matter the age exactly exactly right right well yeah it's been great talking with you and uh, good good information um before i ask my last question now uh, where can people learn more about you and your work so they can find a lot of my um my content on social media. Um, it's at Dr. Ralph, Dr. Dot Ralph Esposito on Instagram. Uh, the website is the same, Dr. Ralph Esposito.com. Uh, and the same thing on Twitter as well, uh, at Dr. Ralph Esposito. So any content you'll find will be in mostly all the same in all of those areas. And that's where you'll find more information as to some of the work that I'm doing. Nice. We're going to put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner? Set boundaries. I think a lot of men uh, and people in general uh, are trying to adapt to this new lifestyle that we have um, of trying to achieve the best. And it, it doesn't allow them to set boundaries for themselves and for other people. And I think if you can set boundaries of how other people influence you and have a say in what you do, then um, the more boundaries you have, the more able you are to live your own truth. And that will set you up for a positive mental mind state. And uh, only with that can optimal health be achieved. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> because a lot of the times it's not about what you add, but also like what you remove or what you eliminate. Absolutely. Addition by subtraction. Nice. Yeah, that's a good uh, good note to end the podcast with. And uh, thanks for coming. Uh, maybe we'll do it another time in the future. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.